Amen. Amen. Well, this morning you have the joy of me and Ross not just leading, but preaching this morning. We're doing a teamwork preach. I think what they thought was people are going to get these guys mistaken anyway, and people will congratulate the other person for the preach anyway, so we might as well both have a stake in it so that we can... <laughs> That's true, that is true. Um, and so we are speaking this morning, and we're carrying on in our series this morning and growing up, growing up in our faith, developing spiritual maturity, growing in the different areas that God is calling us into as his followers, as his people, as his children on this planet um, left here to make um, a, make a move on his kingdom coming and partnering with him to see amazing things happening. Um, and so we've been doing that over the last few weeks. We've been looking at how do we stretch ourselves and, and grow in maturity and grow um, in our spiritual discipline. Um, and I don't know about you, but it's been providing a few moments for me to really stop and take check and say, oh, am I, am I doing well there? Am I, am I walking towards Jesus there? Am I becoming more Christ-like in that area? And I've been finding it so, so helpful. Um, and this morning we are carrying on in that series by looking at how do we grow up when it comes to loving the poor? You know, loving the poor is a theme that comes up time and time and time again in the Bible. We hear Jesus say, um, clothe those who don't have clothes, feed those who don't have any food, give a drink of water to those who have no water, be generous to those who have nothing. And it appears time and time and time again in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. It is a highly recurring theme that God has a heart for those who are poor, who are marginalized, who are experiencing injustice, who are being treated unequally. And, and, and is calling us towards making things right, towards being part of the solution to the problem. How do we develop then spiritual maturity in this area? That's a question that we're going to look at today. And I just want to say, like, what a time to ask that question, hey? What a time to ask what it looks like to become better at loving the poor. You know, we're in the midst of a storm just now, aren't we? There's a global pandemic that means that the world is full of people who are sick, full of people who have lost their jobs or who are struggling financially, full of people who have been treated unequally because of um, their race or their ethnicity or um, their social standing. There's so much going on in the world just now that is crying out for an intervention from the people of God to, to make a difference in that area. And so what a time to ask that question, how do we get better? How do we grow when it comes to loving the poor? And so today we're going to be looking at Deuteronomy chapter 15. It's in the Old Testament. Um, it's one of um, Moses' writings. And basically, this um, book is like Moses' farewell letters. He's 120 years old. They're just about to enter the promised land, having walked through the desert for 40 years. He's about to hand over his leadership of God's people as they transition into the, the, the promised land. And so it's him saying, like, it's almost like him saying, guys, this is the important stuff I need to leave you with. What I'm about to tell you is like what needs to shape and mold you as a people, not just for this generation, but for the generations that are to come. And within this is this wonderful chapter, chapter 15, where Moses says, here's what it looks like to love the poor. And so we're going to read that together just now. It's Deuteronomy chapter 15, and we're going to read verse 1 to 11. Father God, would you come this morning and be in these words as we speak, Father, we recognize when we um, read from your word that it's alive, that this isn't just words on a page of a book written thousands of years ago, Father, but these are words that are Holy Spirit breathed and alive. And so we come with expectant hearts 
and expectant minds and expectant eyes to see and hear what you're doing in this passage this morning, Lord. We're excited to, to allow you to partner with us in growing in the area of loving the poor. Yes. Chapter 15, verse 1. At the end of every seven years, you must cancel debts. This is how it is to be done. Every creditor shall cancel any loan they have made to fellow Israelites. They shall not require payment from anyone among their own people because the Lord's time for cancelling debts has been proclaimed. You may require payment from a foreigner, but you must cancel your debt with any fe that any fellow Israelite owes you. However, and this is a lovely bit, there need be no poor among you. For in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess is your inheritance. He will richly bless you if only you fully obey the Lord your God and you're careful to follow all these commands. I am giving you today. For the Lord your God will bless you as he has promised and you will lend to many nations but will borrow from none. You will rule over many nations but none will rule over you. If anyone is poor among you, you fellow Israelites, in any of the towns of the land of the, that the Lord your God is giving to you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted towards them. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend them whatever they need. Be careful not to harbor this wicked thought. The seventh year, the year for cancelling debts is near, so that you do not show ill will towards the needy among your fellow Israelites and give them nothing. They may then appeal to the Lord against you and you will be found guilty of sin. Give generously to them and do so without a grudging heart. Then because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all of your work and in everything you put your hand to. There will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you, be open-handed towards your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. Ross. Amen. Thank you so much, Scott. Um, Good morning again, everyone. Uh, it's so good to be here, and I'm really excited to be talking about this passage this morning because it seems to be a lot about our response to poverty and injustice in our world, and that is a subject I feel really passionately about. I've been involved in social transformation ministry for um, about nine years now. I've been lucky enough to have that privilege, and uh, over that time, one of the things that I've absolutely loved watching is the way that God uses his church and his people to reflect his love and compassion for the poor. Just last week, I heard a brilliant story about this woman who had been praying and uh, asking God how she could help. It was when we had all that heavy snow and she felt him say, um, I want you to give some money to the church to help people who can't pay for their gas and electric just now. And although that's something we can't usually help with, um, we were approached by three different families in the following days who we were able to help. They had run out of gas and they had no way to buy more and no way to heat their home. And even more amazing than the practical provision was um, the moment when we told them that the money had come from a woman who had prayed and felt like um, God had asked her to give it to people who were struggling. And that just blew people's minds. And we had quite a few quite emotional responses. There's so many people in our church family whose faith journeys and stories have been marked by a moment where someone's shown them the love of God through an act of kindness or where through an act of generosity um, they've glimpsed the kingdom of God or Jesus for the first time or where they've simply been included and accepted in a way that they never thought they would be. And my own journey of faith has definitely been marked by some of those things. 
The Bible is jam-packed full of teaching and uh, stories about God's heart for and the value he places on the poor. And although poverty comes in all different flavors, the poverty we're talking about in the passage that we read this morning is material and financial poverty. And there's a whole host of complex issues that can accompany that. And for people who experience poverty, the um, consequences can be incredibly far-reaching. In the UK, people living in our most deprived communities um, are more likely to be affected by crime and unemployment. They're less likely to have access to things like secondary education or university. They're more likely to have poor, poorer health outcomes. And although the um, life expectancy is increasing overall in the UK, the life expectancy gap between the top and the bottom most deprived areas is actually still increasing. And then there's the whole heap of prejudice and stigma that's attached to poverty that can cause people to feel cast aside, forgotten, given up on and hopeless or rejected, judged or worthless or like a burden of some kind. Perhaps like many people, you can relate to some of these things. I think poverty is a bit like a really deep, wet, slippery, muddy hole. It's very easy to fall into and quickly fall to the bottom off, but it's incredibly hard to scramble out from. It traps families and individuals, sometimes for generations, in a cycle that's incredibly hard to break because of the disadvantage and the lack of opportunity that goes with it. Like a really simple example of how that trap works might be the young person who can't afford the education that could help them get the job that could ultimately be their route out of poverty. And the question we want to ask today is, as Christians, what does spiritual maturity look like in the context of our response to the problem of poverty? Well, one of the first things I noticed from the passage is that we are to be a people who will pursue justice. It sounds a little bit like Batman's strapline, but fortunately, I don't think it means that we have to put on a mask and a cape and run around fighting crime as vigilantes. My colleague Caroline and I uh, teach a course in HMP Grampian on restorative justice. And one of the questions we ask delegates is what they understand the word justice to mean. And we get loads of answers about crime and punishment, about trials and sentences, uh, and about uh, revenge and retribution. But it can also be used more positively when we think of things like social justice, where everyone would have enough food to eat and a safe, warm place to live and access to decent education and healthcare, amongst other things. And that's the kind of justice that we're talking about this morning. Do you know, they, they're, they're inextricably linked. Poverty feeds off injustice and injustice feeds off poverty and together they create this vicious cycle of like, disadvantage and hardship and suffering. In the passage that we read today, the instruction to cancel debt every seven years probably didn't delight the Israelite lenders, but it was a way of making sure that the reset button was being regularly pressed, that everyone had a fresh start and so that no one had to live in continual poverty. It was a way of making sure that injustice didn't build and build and build and become this runaway chain reaction. The sad truth is that the scope and scale of injustice in our world today is overwhelming. Here's some facts. The richest 1% of the world's population owns around 50% of the world's wealth. The 26 richest billionaires own as many assets as the 3.8 billion people who make up the poorest half of the planet's population. It takes just four days for a CEO from one of the top five global fashion brands to earn as much as a Bangladeshi garment worker will earn in their lifetime. 
and 82% of the wealth generated in the year 2018 went to the richest 1% of the global population, whilst the 3.8 billion people who make up the poorest half of the world's population saw no increase in their wealth at all. That last statistic there um, shows us that the way our economies are organised means that wealth is being increasingly concentrated amongst a privileged few whilst millions of people are, are barely surviving. In other words, the gap between the rich and the poor is widening and not narrowing. In 2018, Oxfam published a report on global poverty and one of the things they said in it was this. It doesn't have to be this way. There's enough wealth in the world to provide everyone with a fair chance in life. Governments should act to ensure that taxes raised from wealth and businesses paying their fair share are used to fund free, good quality public services that can save and transform people's lives. I love that. Verse 4 said, There need be no poor people among you, for in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess as your inheritance, he will richly bless you. And when I read this passage, one of the things that stands out to me is that it didn't have to be this way. Plan A was never for there to be poverty and injustice in the world, just as pain and illness and suffering and death and coronavirus were never part of plan A. The fight against poverty and injustice seems to be one of the key ways in which God is establishing his kingdom here on earth. And I think if we want to see our world healed and restored to something that more closely resembles plan A, then we will need to be a people who will pursue justice. So what does that even mean? What does it look like to pursue justice in the face of such overwhelming inequality and poverty? Well, my wife, Laura, and I have got two amazing little boys, Aaron, who is four, and Micah, who is two, and they both have incredibly selective hearing. They can completely filter out things like time to get in the car, put your shoes on, put your jacket on, it's time for dinner, it's time for bed, it's time for bath, uh, and stop hitting your brother. But as soon as we say something like, would you like some chocolate, or shall we put the TV on, their hearing miraculously returns. It's the most incredible thing. We have to repeat ourselves so much to our kids that um, we sometimes joke about what we do with all the free time if they would just listen to us and do what we were asking the first time. It would literally save so much grief in our household. But the truth is, it's in their nature to be independent, to not listen or to hear but to not obey and to work things out in their own way. Verse 4 has just said that there needn't be any poverty and then verse 5 said... If only you fully obey the Lord your God and are careful to follow all these commands I am giving you today. It seems like a bit like that grief in our household. Poverty was avoidable if only the Israelites would listen and obey. And then verse 11, there will always be poor people in the land. It's like Moses knew the Israelites were going to struggle with the verse 5 stuff. I was praying about this talk and I think God spoke to me through a picture of a lone miner working away at a huge co-face, maybe infinite co-face. Eradicating poverty might well be an impossible task, like one man mining at a co-face. But what would happen if we were all to pick up our pickaxes and start chipping away at it together? If one person can change the trajectory of another person's life through a simple act of kindness or love or generosity or through leveling the playing field between them somehow, imagine what could be accomplished if every Christian in the world were mobilized and set themselves to the task. 
I think we'd see individuals and communities and towns and cities and our world being transformed. I think that in the same way that Christians will never look fully like Jesus in this lifetime, and yet we're called to pursue that as our goal, that this passage is calling us to pursue justice, to pursue God's kingdom and his best for the world, knowing that um, poverty and injustice will never be fully eradicated until Jesus comes again. Scott's already said it, but God's uh, compassion for the poor is a major theme that's repeated over and over and over again throughout Scripture. It's, we're all God's treasures, but it's like God's shouting out at us through the pages of the Bible, look, these are my most treasured treasures. And in that picture of the miner that God gave me, I started to see diamonds appearing in the coalface as he was mining at it. And then I found a story online, and it was this. Last summer, a 52-year-old Tanzanian miner named Saninu Lizer found two massive chunks of a rare gemstone called tanzanite. Tanzanite is only found in northern Tanzania, and it is used to make ornaments. It's one of the rarest gemstones on earth. Mr. Lizer mined the stones, weighing 16 kilograms in total, in June 2020, and he sold them a week later for, wait for it, a whopping £2.4 million. There will be a big party tomorrow, Mr. Lizer said. I think that as we pick up our tools to work at the co-face of poverty and injustice, that we can be sure and confident that God goes with us and that he'll lead us to his, and help us to liberate his most treasured treasure. And I'm fairly certain that it's in that way that we can have a big party to look forward to in heaven as well. I think it's true to say that we're all called as Christians to act whenever we see need. We're called to serve and meet the immediate or emergency need. And in the same way that the Israelites were to cancel debt every seven years as a way of kind of restoring the balance and making sure no one lived in continual poverty, we're to find ways to level the playing field too. We're to find ways to help break that cycle of poverty. Maybe that looks like choosing to spend our money with ethical companies that pay fair wages or investing in organisations that tackle uh, things like debt or slavery or other injustices. Or maybe it's as simple as um, taking a look at our own attitudes uh, and hearts and challenging those of others around us. The reality is that working at the coalface is really easy. It involves commitment and sacrifice and disappointment and sometimes pain. Um, my colleague Caroline and I, who head up the Transform team and the wider Transform team, have lost um, people who have been part of our church family for many, many years to poverty and poverty-related issues, more, more often than we care to remember. Sometimes uh, we have the privilege of taking those funerals, and although the pain uh, and the heartache of that never gets any easier, um, the one thing that helps is if we knew that that person knew Jesus. A few weeks ago now, Chuck gave uh, an incredible talk at the Vineyard National Gathering, and one of the things he said in it was this. What if the only thing we need, the key ingredient that would cause us to become unimaginably fruitful, is to be unimpeachably faithful to the instruction of Jesus? What if spiritual maturity in the context of our response to the problem of uh, poverty and injustice started with simply hearing and obeying God's instructions? What if we're supposed to serve the poor and stand up against injustice as an act of obedience and discipline and worship? 
What would happen if we all stepped out in faith and gave generously of our time and our talents and our resources, believing that the stuff in verse 10 is true, that because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in everything you put your hand to? What would happen if we were to give an hour or two, a week or maybe a fortnight to volunteer in its storehouse or for the cap debt centre or as a befriender or to deliver the cap money course or to cook at Lifestyle or as a parish nurse or to lead a prison Bible study? I think God would take the little that each of us can bring and he would use it to contribute to the collective effort bringing about wholesale change and transformation to our region. And I find that so challenging. But I believe that in our obedience, God, uh, we draw closer to God and our hearts and our attitudes and our fears are changed with proximity to Jesus and we start to see fruit and God's kingdom coming into lives and situations. I just want to finish with this. We'll finish my part and then I'll hand you back to Scott. Um, In Matthew 25, it says, For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. What an incredible truth that is, that in his kindness, we get to serve God by serving those who are in need around us. And in his grace, through that service, he allows trust and relationships to grow, which in turn creates space for people to be real and vulnerable, for healing and restoration to begin, for hope and worth and dignity to be restored, and for an encounter with Jesus, which is ultimately where a person's life can be completely transformed. I'm just going to hand you back to Scott. Yeah. And... I just, this, this is just so wonderful. Thank you, Ross, because it's like, it's like a blueprint, isn't it, in this passage? Like, it's a blueprint for how to do that really well. Like, how do we love those who are poor and who are marginalized really well? You know, it makes it really clear in verse 11 when he says, there will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you, be open-handed towards your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. It's like open-handed generosity. Like, those are the words that come around time and time again. And this is like timely information for God's people because they've been touring the desert for 40 years. They've been going around and around. And I think it's really important to notice that, you know, Moses doesn't give this information to them right at the very start of that journey where they might forget it or they might not remember that it was a thing, but he's given it to them just at the moment where they're about to head into the promised land. They're just about to inherit riches and goodness and plenty and bountiful blessing. And so just as they... It's almost like him just before they go in the door at Christmas Day, he's saying, but hey, with all this stuff you're about to get, remember there will be poor people. Remember to be generous. Remember to be kind and open-hearted towards the people who are there. It's very timely information. And so I've got a question for us just as we're coming into land. And the question is this, what would we do differently? What would we change right at this very moment if it turned out that this pandemic was the most open opportunity that we will ever have to sow generosity and kindness into the world around us? What would we do differently right now if it turned out this was the best opportunity we will ever have to see the good news of Jesus in action in the communities round about us? What if we'd been given a window, the likes of which we may never see again in our lifetimes, where people are ready and in need of the kingdom of God and the generosity of God's people in a way like has never been the case before. I really believe that we might be in that moment. We might be 
looking through that very window. We have a blueprint for how it works. This passage gives us really key principles. Be generous, be open-handed. There is no need for poor people in this land. I love that. It gives us a plan to implement change immediately and create space in our lives for generosity and meaningful love to thrive in a way that draws people towards Jesus. I love in the book of Esther, Esther is one of my favorite stories in the Bible, but there's a moment where after she's become queen and there's some terrible stuff about to happen to God's people where her uncle turns up and he calls her into her authority as queen and and he, he uses these words. He says, maybe you were put in this position for such a time as this, for such a time as this. A couple of months ago, uh, we uh, had been out with our kids and we'd just arrived back at the house um, and I was fetching uh, our son, Cale, about the car and I handed my house keys to our daughter and I said, Evelyn, can you go and open the door for me? Uh, and I set about um, getting Cale out of the car and I turned around and, and Evelyn was sort of standing in the, the garden path uh, and I was like, oh, did you open the door? And she said, no. And I said, oh, why not? Can you go and open it? And she said, oh, I can't. And I said, why not? So I, I, I've put the keys through the letterbox and I... I was like, you put the keys through the letterbox? I was like, why did you put the keys through the letterbox? Like, I don't know, just posted the keys, fun game, isn't it? And we didn't have a spare key. We'd, we'd borrowed our spare key a few months ago and we'd forgot our key. So all of our keys are in the house at this point. So I don't know what you guys would have done in this situation. Uh, I hope you have someone like this in your life, but I picked up the phone to my friend, Mike. Uh, and Mike is just, I don't know if you've got a guy like this in your life, but it, there's no situation beyond Mike. You know, you can phone him up and he's got a tool or a thing for every situation. So I phone him up. I'm like, Mike, we've just done this. What can I do? And he was like, well, why don't you get a magnet and we can do some stuff. And so I went up to his house and he gave me this very magnet. Uh, it was sitting in his neighbor's garage. I think he got it off of his neighbor and it was a really strong magnet. And then he also gave me um, one of these as well. He gave me a wire coat hanger and he was like, you just have to attach the magnet to the wire coat hanger. And I was like, brilliant, I can do that. So what I also found was a dirty sock in the back of our car that one of our children had taken off. And so I skewered the dirty sock through the wire coat hanger and I started to unravel the wire coat hanger and sort of bent it around a wee bit and turned it into a bit of a hook. And then I put it through the door with the dirty sock on the end, with the magnet in the dirty sock. Uh, and I started fishing about for my keys. And unbelievably, after a couple of minutes of trying, I snared my keys on the magnet and we got back into the house. I know, I feel like that does. I feel like that was a, a bit of a, a bit of a, what is it, MacGyver, the, the American where he just makes um, stuff out of anything. Here's the thing though. These three things, a dirty sock, a wire coat hanger and, and an old magnet sitting in a garage were three disused, flung aside things, a little bit dirty, not seen of any use to anyone, and suddenly they got me home. They got me home. It's almost as if they were made for that particular moment. And I just wonder if some of us have been asking God in this period, God, what is my purpose? What am I made for? I just feel like I'm cast aside or I feel a bit useless or I feel a bit dirty and I feel like I don't have a purpose in your kingdom. And maybe, just maybe, God is saying, you were made for such a time as this. You were made for such a time as this. You know, maybe for some of us, we're feeling like this magnet that was once useful, but had been forgotten and left and cast aside and is sitting in a box in the garage. And maybe God's calling you out again in this season to say, 
you are useful. Come and catch people with me. You know, maybe some of us are feeling like this wire coat hanger, you know, a little bit bent and shook out of shape. And actually this season's felt like we've been dragged and pulled and shifted in all directions and we don't even recognize ourselves anymore. What if God was the one doing the pulling and the shifting and the moving to get you ready for what he's got to come? What if the the bending and the tough thing that you've been experiencing has been a prequel to you being made the exact right way for what's to come and increased ability to love and increased um, ability for generosity, a growing compassion in your heart for those who are left on the fringes and marginalized and treated unfairly for no good reason? Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe that's us this morning. Maybe for some of us, we're feeling like this dirty sock. Actually, we're just feeling like, goodness, I feel like I'm so far from anything that God would want to be near. I feel like I've made too many mistakes and I feel like I'm just not clean in his eyes. And I wonder if God's saying this morning, I'm not looking for perfect. I'm not looking for the exact right, perfect, holy person. I'm looking for you. The reality is none of us are perfect. And we need Jesus um, to set us free from a bunch of stuff. But maybe you're feeling like a dirty sock this morning who's not got a use and God's saying, I want to use you. There's a place for you in my kingdom. Would you come and catch people with me? Friends, can I just encourage us today? Don't count yourselves out. None of us should be counting ourselves out in this moment, but instead counting ourselves in. Let's bring whatever we have to offer, our time, our talents, our gifts, our money, our uh, possessions. Let's bring them afresh to the hands of God right now and say, God, this is what I have. It may be a lot in the world's eyes or it may be not very much, but this is what I have. And I would love you to use it in your kingdom. Would you set me on fire and send me out? Who are you calling me? to demonstrate your kingdom to today? Who are you calling me to love extravagantly? You see, church, I think it's our job to set the tone for what loving the poor looks like. I think we're called to be at the very forefront of demonstrating generosity, radical generosity that actually hurts our comfort, but brings real sweet relief to people in a difficult position. I think we're called to be at the very forefront of compassion, loving people who nobody else has taken an interest in or have been cast aside by society. I think we're called to be right at the front of justice, of bringing justice to those situations that are completely unfair and that are completely um, unjust. And so what part have we got to play? Where are you going to put your bit of the jigsaw in the perfect place that God's calling you to go? Wouldn't it be incredible if in the cities that we live in or the towns or the villages that Jesus' name became synonymous with there not being any debt and Jesus' name became synonymous with nobody being hungry and actually Jesus' name was the reason that prisons weren't needed anymore and Jesus' name became synonymous with people being loved extravagantly and wonderfully. Wouldn't that be the most incredible thing I guess the first step then, as Ross said, is us choosing to be obedient. 
us choosing to follow those instructions, to be open-handed and generous and kind and loving in a way that sets the bar and causes all eyes to point towards Jesus. And as we do that and people experience his love in action, I just wonder what stories people will have of how they encountered the King of Kings and the generosity of his sons and daughters. Why don't we pray?